Good. The floor is open for queries, questions, remarks, please. I think that just shows you how the mind projects. <laughs> Looks like you passed. <laughs> yeah, please. Yes, patience, kindness, and caring, and friendliness. Patience, kindness, friendliness, and caring. It's four qualities. That was out of the quotation that I gave last night. Harmlessness is in there, isn't it? Son? Avihingsa, harmlessness is in there. Uh, Yes, it is as well. Yeah, harmlessness. Yeah. Well, I think my, for me, the first uh, thing is not to beat yourself up about it. Um, that would be the first attitude to take. I might say a kind of general comment before um, um, dealing specifically with what you're asking here, which is actually um, none of this stuff is difficult that we're you know, engaging in, the mindfulness that we're engaging in. Um, the difficulty lies in remembering to do it because those habit patterns are so dominant. So in the way I'm specifically answering your question. It really is when you recollect, when you bring to mind again um, this particular way of practicing this particular path, then do it. And it's continuity as much as anything else. I think um, Kinchner mentioned this yesterday. It's continuity in doing it. But if you don't do it, you know, try and find other ways of incorporating mindfulness in your life. If you can't do formal practice, you know, it's not a substitute, but at least we're bringing those same attitudes of mind um, to, for example, a task in the workplace, a task in your home life, um, just your attitudes towards people, the way you can open up towards people. There's actually, in a way, there's no excuse for not practicing, but that doesn't mean formal practice. Although the formal practice is the way of really sense grounding and founding yourself. But first, as I say, um, if there are lapses in your formal practice, well, treat it with a degree of kindness and with friendliness. There are probably reasons for it. Um, But when you realize that that is the case, bring yourself back. And if you can't do it formally, try and do it informally. Uh, That would be my particular uh, take on this. I would probably also suggest you consciously to to recall the advantages of practice and um, maybe identify some of the disadvantages of not practicing. Yeah, So make that kind of more clear to your own mind. Um, how good it felt when you did or how things became more clear or whatever you feel are the benefits. 
It's more easy to see the advantages of practice than the disadvantages of not practicing. Because the disadvantages will show up, but they will not show up tagged to not practicing. They will show up as just, you know, more pressure, less space, more hurriedness, less equanimity, uh, you know, easier uh, attacks of greed, anger, and other forms of confusion. So, but making this more conscious, the price you pay for not doing it and what may be gained for in doing it. So it's kind of, this helps me sharpen the priorities in my own mind. It's uh, worth remembering that even some of the greatest long-term practitioners do the particular thing that uh, Vic Kinchino is mentioning. I remember having a conversation once when um, the Dalai Lama visited Oxford and he was saying he recollects every morning the benefits of the practice of compassion. He does this every day as a practice. Yeah. And you think perhaps he's a bit beyond that, but he doesn't. He says, you know, this is really just to kind of remind yourself what are the benefits and actually what are the downside of not doing it? What's the downside of not being compassionate in ordinary life? And so I think, I think it's a really good practice, this practice of recollecting. And actually it can be, for, even for those who are, you know, for example, diligently practicing, it can be also a very good practice to recollect every so often the advantages and the changes that have taken place in your life. Um, because sometimes they don't take place on the cushion very much. Uh, for a lot of people, they don't observe massive changes. I don't know if Akinjano agrees with that, but... Um, in my experience, when I've you know, kind of been in interview situations with people, sometimes they'll say, oh, I've been practicing 10 years now, and actually when I sit down, my meditation is still pretty chaotic, and I have difficulty, um, you know, for example, bringing my mind back on occasions and that. And then you kind of sit down with them and you go through and say, well, actually, what's changed in your life? And often <laughs> there's huge changes that have gone on in their lives uh, that's not necessarily reflected on the cushion. Um, so it's actually quite good to recollect what's actually changed in your life. Um, perhaps that little less irritation in situations which normally would wind you up, a little less hurriedness in our ordinary life, a little bit less flustered you know, in the things that we do. All of these things are tangible benefits of the practice, uh, but you actually have to call them to mind sometimes because when you're living them, they're not so noticeable unless you actually re you know, reflect on them in there, you know, if it's moved in. Uh, there's a very interesting story that uh, in the place where I work in Oxford, and uh, one of the psychiatrists, because I teach in a place which does mindfulness in a secular sense for people who have depressions, uh, depressive problems and illnesses and that. One of the psychiatrists uh, who was in our department, uh, he was practicing mindfulness and he'd been doing it for about nearly two months. And he said to his wife one day, he said, you know, this mindfulness, I don't seem to get anywhere, anywhere with it. It doesn't really seem to do anything for me. Um, I think I'll give up doing it. And his wife said, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes the changes can be observable by others, even if it's not observable by yourself. Sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't, but um, 
I want to just tell you, so I want, my question is around that, and I want to tell you what happened with me here, and then you could answer that question. But right before um, we went into silence, I was given some information that was very daunting to me. And I thought, oh, how perfect, you know. I have all of this that I need to, that I'm gonna, I have no place to process and talk about it except for my mind. I need to just go into silence now and, and, and see what happens. And the interesting thing is, is for the first morning, I nodded off. And I would go out and I would, you know, I would go for a walk and then I'd come back in and, and I just, I couldn't be awake. And I thought, well, that's probably a version. Um, and then I also thought that it's probably emotional exhaustion from having to deal with an issue, you know, that is around this. But then after that, what I, what happened to me is that I started to, interesting enough, I, I didn't go back to this story because it really wasn't my story. Somewhere deep inside of me came this feeling of non-identification, that the news that was given to me right before my silence wasn't about me, although there were, the players were the same. It was very interesting. So. I didn't really revisit it much, but when I did, it just, I don't know, there's just something that moved on in me. Um, and so I continued my meditation and um, had a lot of, you know, that expansive spaciousness. Um, but then I felt like I'd received some insight, but it wasn't sitting on this cushion. It was when I woke up in the morning, hmm. I had, and I'm, I'm starting to realize that things come to me in that state of just waking up that feel like insight and awareness. So that was another added awareness that, wow, this is, this is good. And that's why I didn't make the meditation in the morning at 5.30. I was in that place of just being with what I was getting. So um, I just want, I want some, you know, where do you, where do, Insight comes in different places, not just sitting here. And so if you can speak to all those different places. You create space when doing this practice. Yeah. Insights come, they're not the prerogative of meditation. Yeah. So insights come in all moments of our lives. But often they come because you have charged, learned to charge your batteries, say by formal practice, or because you've learned to create the space because you have established wholesome attentional qualities, because you have learned to park things or to sustain attention on un unpleasant stuff, you know. You learn the skills of the trade in there. You do not have any guarantee that it is in formal practice that insights arise. Yeah. But with insight, with formal practice, you, you generate capacity to go in the midst of difficult challenging circumstances to, to touch into a space where you have access to a deeper wisdom, where you have the capacity to slow down, to calm down, where you can heighten your capacity to hold or to take things, yeah? so that you have access to not just the most frightened layer of your mind, that you actually know, okay, there's fear, and underneath there's other stuff, there's values, and then there's stillness, and there is the capacity for me to be in touch with this. 
And it's no wonder that some of this happens in the morning when you awake, when your personality formation hasn't quite taken hold of you yet. You know, you're, you're kind of still reassembling the pieces, and that often is we're particularly permeable for uh, more profound ways of understanding or seeing things. That doesn't intrinsically speak against formal meditation practice and say, let's just stay longer in bed, you know, <laughs> just to. Yeah, I, I would caution against this conclusion. I thought that was the message. <laughs> I think uh, it's very interesting the way you describe your journey um, just over this day, which is one of, you know, initially what I call um, aversive avoidance. We see, we haven't spoken about them over these, uh, over yesterday, but we see the arising particularly of the hindrance of sleepiness and drowsiness, you know, what's generally um, called sloth and torpor. And this is not just the sleepiness and drowsiness, as I always make clear when we find this arising, particularly on meditation retreats, usually after a few days. Um, you know, in the first few days you get it particularly. What we see is the avoidance strategy. You want to avoid a lot of the stuff that's in your mind, and particularly when you've got a difficulty, and it sounds like you're presented with a big difficulty, here you go, well, actually, what can I do? Sleep. <laughs> That's one of the best ways of avoiding, of avoiding anything. And it sounds like then the shift takes place later on, and the shift is actually starting to depersonalize it. You know, it no longer becomes my problem. You know, it, becomes some, it becomes a problem. Um, and there's a little bit of distance between it. Um, and one of the things, as a kind of general remark, is one of the things that we often do with anything that occurs in our lives um, is we personalize it. You know, we really, really it's about me. You know? uh, and when we can start to depersonalize a little thing, not take it all so seriously, all so personally. I'm not saying it's not serious what's happening. Um, but we, stop, we start to take the sting out of the tail of it a little bit by not taking it so personally. You know, for example, when somebody's angry at me, sometimes that's nothing to do with me. It's actually a lot to do with them, and it just happens to be me that happens to be in the way um, when they're being angry. And yet I could get very, very angry at them for being angry at me. And now we've got anger with compound interest. You know, so it's not very useful in that sense. So the moment we start to depersonalize it, we can come into a different relationship with it. And what is interesting about what you said is then that can give fruition to some degree of insight about ways of dealing with it. Yeah. And it almost has to go through those stages. I'm not saying inevitably it has to go through those stages. But it's an interesting journey that you've explained there, you know, of kind of avoidance to depersonalizing to a degree of insight. You know, that can only happen when there's, there's some spaciousness around the problem. Because normally we are so totally inveigled in the problem, we can't get any distance from it. We can't separate ourselves from it. Actually, we don't even often allow ourselves the luxury of avoidance a lot of the time. Um, so I think this spaciousness that comes on with a meditative attitude which we can bring into life doesn't inevitably give rise to insight, but it allows the possibility of insight to arise. And that, as, as the Kinchner well said, you know, it doesn't have to arise on the cushion, it can arise anywhere. What we're doing is creating the conditions 
for the arising of insight. And that's what formal practice often does. It doesn't mean you're going to get the insight on the cushion or on the walking path, but what it does mean is you're creating the conditions for insight to arise into situations. Yeah. to go home uh, for a holiday to see my family and normally I do really well with my practice and can be pretty aware in daily life. Again, is like the one thing that can throw that off. I was wondering if you had any insight into how to be a little bit more mindful, a lot more compassionate around triggering situations like being in a family situation. <laughs> Families are our biggest challenges, aren't they? <laughs> Often I mean, with people close to you. Yes, I think, I mean, for me, when we move back into family and often conflictual situations, then we have to bring a lot more friendliness and a lot more kindness into those situations and start, you know, start stop almost making the demand that, that they have to appreciate the changes that you have gone through and everything else. It's like, often we're very pushy. You know, we want to say, this is where I am, this is what I can remember when I was very young, you know, I was going home to my parents, and my parents never understood what I was doing, I hadn't got a clue, uh, you know, going off to India at the age of 17 and things like that, and coming home, and, you know, I want to say, I've been through all these changes, I've done all of this, you're not recognising me, are you? Of course they weren't, they couldn't understand <laughs> a thing about what was going on with me, and so there was actually a lot of unkindness on my part, in bringing that, because I'm making demands on them they can't actually meet. Now, if we have insight into, again, it's insight here, if we have insight into the fact that often there is that incomprehension, but because it's family, because it's parents, often there can still be a lot of love and kindness, appreciation for all the things that they've done. You know, I think those are the things we need to dwell on, not that I'm not being seen, and that might be true, uh, that might be very, very true, but it might be just simply because there is incomprehension about the changes that we, we, that we go through, you know, whether it be in this form of thing, you know, going through a meditative retreat and engaging in practice and the kind of worlds we live in and that. But it can also be other forms of life that we engage in as well. We sometimes make what I think are very heavy demands on people that just actually can't meet them. And that's not very kind, you know. If we can become more aware of that, of, of those sort of demands that we're making, then perhaps again we can loosen up a bit and really start to appreciate the good things that are there in those relationships as opposed to all the things that are not happening. Sometimes it's just good to actually change the focus, isn't it? Just focus in, you know, on what's good in this relationship, not what's bad. It's very, very easy um, the human mind, the human brain, actually has a bias to remember bad things. You know, obviously, it's evolutionary. You know, that's what we had to do. You know, to hold. I mean, I think uh, some of the neuroscientists say that actually to um, actually hold a good thing and to really imprint it on your mind, you've got to hold it in your mind for a lot longer hmm. than the negative things. Negative things come easily. We really appreciate those, and we can hold on to those. <laughs> You know, makes uh, sense. Eating the wrong mushrooms, you know, yeah. you remember the tummy ache for a long time. It stays <laughs> you 
helps you stay away from those mushrooms. That's right. So when we're in these relationships, I think to, to bring to mind, to reframe and to recall all the good things that are going on about this. And this is just true in, in your daily life as well. You know, just to recall the th good things that are going on for you opposed to all the bad things that are going on for you. Um, this is not to deny those areas of difficulty, but it's least to put them in perspective and balance them against the more positive dimensions of our experience. So that would be my take on it. I'm sure Akinjana has got something to say too. Just a few tricks. You know, family is a strange planet, you know, and on that planet, a type of gravity works on you that doesn't work on other people. So it's all very private. So one way of getting a perspective of not just what's going on there, but also what's going on with you when you're on, the, on this planet, yeah, is take a friend with you or make sure you contact other people when you dare and get a perspective and listen to yourself speaking. Um, go for a walk alone while, while there for several days or so. Just make sure you kind of go out and see how you feel on your own when they're not there. Clarify to yourself what expectations you have. You know, often we have, we seek, we are ambivalent. We want the warmth, the, the comfort, the confidence that these people give us. At the same time, we don't want to be infantilized. We don't want to be put into the places we always had when our siblings were there. Yeah? So kind of make that clear to yourself. What you want and how, what, what changes in you. You know, maybe you, you find that you get very impatient when she starts speaking or things like that, that you become aware how unfair you are at that moment, that you're quite patient to listen to the same message out of another mouth and you would not be half as irate. Yeah? So acknowledging some, not just what they do to you, but actually what happens in you, because you yourself become different in a family system. Yeah, I think that's about, that's about it. And you don't, don't try to fool yourself that you could get away from them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they can be buried all and they're still with you. Yeah? <laughs> so there's, there's basically, you have to resolve this. You have to find out what happens there because this is your, uh, this is your tribe. You know, this is your entry into this world and they will have had a formative influence on you, whatever your opinion about them is. Yeah? So you better understand this. Good luck. <laughs> 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 Somebody over the back there? Um, so, one of the things I really like about uh, this retreat, as with many, is that when we're on the cushion, it's almost like you're coaching us on um, meditating, being non judgmental towards our thoughts, distractions, and mind wandering. Um, so, when we talk about pragmatism, sometimes I wish I could take you guys on the earbud daily life at work or even at play um, because outside of this meditation retreat life becomes a lot busier. Um, so oftentimes I find myself, um, say at work, uh, ruminating about something that happened that's very bothering me or a problem that I'm dealing with or I'm very anxious about um, something I'm going to do, uh, something I have to decide what to do. Um, in that case, you know, we don't quite have 
situation, and I'll deal with it when I get home, and, and I get the opportunity to talk to the person I need to talk to. But in this moment, I, I have work to do. Um, I was wondering if you have advice in those situations, what, what specifically you think is the best um, attitude or um, actions Um, learn strategies to play time and stop your mind from going into habitual rumination. So body awareness is a, is a, is a very big help for this. Um, even though you, are, you sound very busy, I trust you'll be still breathing when you're on the job. <laughs> and, you know, there's ways you can connect with your breath. So just kind of t take a deep breath or just... Acknowledge the posture of your body and just in a kind of sweeping movement say, where is tension? Can I drop my shoulders? Can I, you know, shift my weight so that I stand on both feet? Can I widen my chest and actually acknowledge that I am an upright human being here? You know, this is something you can discreetly do. You can do subversive forms of meditation practice waiting for the elevator. Yeah? We all do waiting a day. You wait for on front of the coffee machine, you walk through a stairwell, you, you move through spaces and you con consciously bring your attention back to the body, back to the breath. Just centering your attention for three breaths on breathing into the belly will give you another perspective on the ruminating project. Um, also, I think if you respond to uh, being spoken to in the way you described, you, you have to... You have to internalize uh, a your own meditation teacher. You know, you have to internalize your own better good or good friend. Yeah. Internalize a Buddha if you have a relationship to the Buddha. Internalize somebody who you think is competent in doing what they're doing and recall that. Ask yourself, what would that person do? Can I speak to this guy? Can I get him online right now? Yeah. What would my better... What would my better understanding do? What would my meditated mind do right now? So that you become less dependent on the earbud and more rely on your own intelligence. Because something in you obviously knows already something about what's happening there. Otherwise, you wouldn't describe it in this way. Consider that you have options. Whenever you go into that rumination mode and you notice that you do that, you already have a great choice. Yeah. If you can go in there, you can also not go in there. Yeah. Body anchoring is something that helps me a lot. Just using posture, breath, and the acknowledgement of what's happening in my senses. What do I hear? What do I smell? What do I feel? Uh, what is the tone of my body doing? That generally disengages me from an all too cognitive process. And even if, if, even if this is only a short intervention, it helps. Short interventions are very useful in this because what actually happens in these situations, particularly when you start to ruminate, is you contract. There's no spaciousness around what's going on for you. <clears throat> in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, you have a very useful technique which we um, describe for people and give to people as a daily practice. And you think daily practice, gosh, that's got to be kind of sitting half an hour on a cushion or 45 minutes on a cushion. This takes three minutes. 
You, know, you can do it in the bathroom you know, when you have a bathroom break. Um, it's very simple. The first, is, the first minute, if you like, the first minute is actually seeing what's around for you. What's experiences are going on? What's, what's the patterns of your mind at this moment in time? The second minute is actually focusing on the breath. You come in on the breath itself. And you spend approximately, I mean, these are not precise. You know, it can be greater or lesser. Approximately a minute on the breath. Then we widen out the experience again now to include the body. Include the body and the breath and the thoughts. And so if you think of an hourglass, what it's doing is this. It's kind of this shape. You start with the overall feelings, what's around for you at the moment, narrow down to the breath for a minute, and then widen out to include the body, experience, feelings, and the breath. That done on, I don't know, three, four times a day can create a degree of spaciousness where we don't feel contracted into the problems and all the rumination. Uh, it's very effective. I would, you know, if you kind of find yourself in that situation, take yourself to the bathroom. Everybody can spend three minutes in the bathroom. Um, and just, you know, just try it. It's a very, very useful technique yeah. just for, for loosening things up a bit. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that an okay technique? The quick answer is yes. <laughs> if it works, use it. Um, primarily, counting techniques are used in, in the kind of forms of meditation last night that we, I think we both disagree about. We both agree that we don't like the word concentration, but it's a way of focusing, of beginning to focus the mind. Um, this is slightly different from what we've been doing here, in a sense of asking you to open up um, to the greater, wider field of our experience and see what's arising in there. But it's a very useful technique. You, you give the mind things to do, such as counting, and there's, you know, the traditions have all forms of different countings. You know, counting up, counting down, counting one breath, you know, counting one, 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 two, 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 you know, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten on one breath. Um, and then counting down. There's loads of ways of doing it. Doing this, you give the mind something to do. Uh, it likes it. Yeah. I would actually, if you haven't tried this, if you haven't tried counting techniques, they can be quite useful. They're not for everybody, I might add. Um, but I think the, it's very much a pragmatism. If it works, use it. But use it as a basis for, for stabilizing focus and attention. Um, at some point, you can drop that and see what happens by just mm -hmm. looking at the breath and widening then your field of attention and so that it includes what, el what else is arising. But it's a very, very good basic way of establishing yourself. And even in one sitting, you can start off with counting to settle the mind, to actually, I think Kirchner was saying, to calm the mind, which is what we're doing, to calm the mind and then let go of the counting and see what happens. Yeah, by widening that field of attention. Make sure you connect the counting to a, a breathing activity. Mm. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yeah, that was a question there. Um, my wife is uh, not a practitioner of any tradition at all. And she'll often tell me that some people don't use practice. They just figure it out themselves. Is she right? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't argue with it. <laughs> Doesn't matter whether she's right. 
if you're smart, <laughs> you, you don't argue. And, uh, you know, whatever you're going to say about the fruit of this practice for you, she will look how you are. Uh, if you're convincing, it is not because of what you say and how plausible your argument for mindfulness practice sounds. If you're plausible for her, it will be because she sees something changing in you. I would try convincing her that she is wrong and that she actually should practice, preferably practice what you believe you should practice. I wouldn't go for that one. Um, The only people harder to convince than spouses are kids, you know, so just practice and if they find that this is good for you, they will become interested and curious. That would be my, you know, my little hint, suggestion. Yeah. It's not about being right. Um, you can be right all the way long and still it doesn't work. You know. I think I think there's a general thing here is we can't convince somebody else. You know, and I think Kinshina is right in the sense of saying, well, actually, the only proof that this works is how you are. And even then, uh, somebody still has to come to it, whether it be a spouse or a friend or a relative or whoever, has to come to it out of their own understanding of the necessity for it. I think we're on futile ground in many ways trying to convince people that they should do this. There has to be the motivation. There has to be actually what we've been talking about over this weekend. There has to be the intention to want to practice. And often that can come, as I kind of suggested, I think it was on the first evening, has to come through sometimes a sense that something isn't quite right and I can't deal with it with all the normal means that I deal with things. Um, So we have to come to it, um, in a sense, through some kinds of senses of distress in our lives and that we can't actually deal with all the problems that we have in the normal ways. All the amount of rational argument, I don't think it's going to persuade anybody. I don't think it's very, very useful at all. Um, and if they do, it'll often last for a time. And it's a bit like some, trying to convince somebody, I don't know, who's an alcoholic, um, and they don't really want to give up drinking. Yeah. They won't do it. They'll go back to it, even if they abstain for a certain period of time through all the rational arguments about what it's doing to them. Now, I'm not obviously equating it directly with that, but in a sense, it's the same kind of form. Uh, the rational argument doesn't work. It has to be in a felt sense of necessity that there is something else I need in my life to help me deal uh, with the living process. Yeah. Be subversive. Smile. Be patient. Act kindly. <laughs> <laughs> Buddhist soft sell. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Wonderful. That's great. <laughs> yes, please. Um, what suggestions would you give regarding entertainment, TV, and business? Make choices. You know, look at the TV program before you flick on the machine. Make a choice what you want to see. 
You make sure that you make the choice rather than the program makes the choice for you. Be selective. Um, it's more easy to handle these uh, media if you establish a kind of criteria for viewing and if you make a conscious choice before the thing already runs. Um, experiment with diet for a time, you know. Try to minimize and see what, whether that is bearable. Um, go without for a few days just to find out what it does to your system, to what degree you're actually hooked into a, say, infotainment, uh, you know, pitch. Um, and don't go Puritan about it. That would be my, maybe John has some ideas. Yeah, I think the, I mean, I agree with what Kinchner is saying here. It's very, it's, the situation we need to be in with regard to any kind of media is that we are in control, but not the media is controlling us. Um, we can be so easily hooked in, and these become our default options, you know, particularly in difficulties. We run away, and it, you know, we run away into entertainment. Um, basically to get out of our minds a lot of the time. One of the suggestions I always make is that we retain that control by really knowing what we're doing. If it doesn't sound so strange, we can be mindful of going and switching on the TV set. We can be mindful of going and watching a movie. And what I mean by the mindfulness here is I know what I'm doing and I know why I'm doing it. That it's not simply a compulsive behavior. That every time I come in in the night and I feel tired because I had a hard day at work, you know, whatever my work might be, mm -hmm. and I go and switch on the TV set. Yeah. Uh, or I use um, music, movies, as a way of blotting out the problems that I have in my life. Yeah. Sometimes even that is okay. And this is, I think, I agree with what um, Akinchino was saying, don't be puritanical about it. Know what you're doing. Know why you're using it. Yeah. I think that's the, the, the key for me, is actually to really have, as a cognitive sense of knowing, what I am doing. Mm. Yeah. For me, the kind of, the criterion is, the stuff I'm going to entertain myself with has to be in itself uh, interesting or in somehow promising of value. So I have to actually decide for something specific rather than just something that takes me out of my mind. You know, that would be a criterion. Is this intrinsically interesting or is it just interesting to get me out of where I am currently at with myself? Those would be uh, two different options. Mm. And I would say it has to be intrinsically, in some way, entertaining or promising that, rather than just take me out of my boredom, uh, restlessness, fatigue, or whatever. I don't want to answer my emails. Let me just kind of, you know, rifle through a couple of internet fora uh, on my preferred topic, whatever that may be. I hope we answer to your question. Just one final comment, I think. For me, I think the, the main thing about all of this is we live, we live in, you know, in the Western world where we're dominated by media. Media is all, all around us from you know, 
computer internet facilities to the movies that are there, to the television that are there. In, in the UK, we have a lot of radio, talk radio, um, for example. Come into a wise relationship with it. Don't just abandon it. That's not a wise relationship. It might be useful, as Akinchino says, you know, to try, um, in a sense, a bit like an addiction, uh, see how it feels when you drop it. Yeah. See, see if there's withdrawal symptoms <laughs> from it. Um, and see if you can go through those withdrawal symptoms. But just don't abandon it. Come into a wise relationship with it. Because in other words, why, the reason I'm abandoning it actually is creating yet another problem, aversion, strongly in the mind. So it's, it's how to use it wisely. Um, and the wise intention, actually coming back again to the theme of the weekend, the wise intention that we can bring um, to what we, what we want to get out of that particular you know, use of uh, some kind of form of media. I think I'll end there. <laughs> I could go on. Please. Reconsider your notion of interruption. You know, see, see whether it is possible to, to question your notion of what is my time and what is interruption of my time. I, I, could, I could see some suffering arising from that distinction. Because, um, you know, these, these kids, they will need you. They have no choice in this. Uh, what you do matters to them tremendously. So um, you don't want to have them in the interruption bracket. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you know, I suspect that you also want to be with these kids. Yeah, so they um, there has to be another place other than interrupted or my time. Uh, go to another place with that. See whether you can widen the perspective of that which may on one level be an interruption of your preferred activity, maybe meditation or doing asanas, uh, can be framed in a different way so that, this is, that, that you are in there as well. That this is not just an interruption. Um, Acknowledge moments of stillness in the midst of activity. You know, I think a lot. I am a lot with people as a therapist and as a teacher. And there are parts of my life where I don't spend six hours on my meditation cushion a day. Yeah? So learn to find stillness in movement. Learn to find stillness in activity. Um, connect. Maybe you can learn from these kids. There are things kids do better than we do, you know. Their kind of self-abandonment, their capacity to be curious and learning, you know, the speed at which they pick up some things. Uh, 
or even their resistances, you know, looking at how they are operated by like and dislike and how much it takes to motivate them. You know, you can learn a lot about mind by, by being with them. John? Simple, pra- simple practical uh, solution if what Akinchino is suggesting doesn't work is find, find times when the children are not around. And that might actually be this very unpleasant word that we use sometimes. It's called a little bit of renunciation. And that renunciation is often of a little bit of sleep, a little bit of TV, a little bit of whatever we do um, in our lives, often to distract ourselves. And finding the spaciousness there in order for this non-interrupted time. Um, so that's often what I recommend, particularly with people with busy lives and children, and that is actually, you know, 20 minutes sacrificing you know, that you'd be in bed for can often create that space that you just need to, to have that settled period um, that we often so desperately crave, um, despite the fact we love the children and we love our families and everything else. Um, it is important sometimes to, to try and create that space. In order to create that space, and if we value what we're doing, you know, say your yoga asana practice or your, you know, your meditation space and that, you have to try and create a space within your frame, um, within your timetable in some way. And often, unfortunately, the only way of doing that is often early morning and late at night. Yeah? And that's just really the pragmatics of it. And, and that is a little bit of what I call renunciation. It's a horrible word in many ways, but um, it is actually giving a little bit up to gain something from something else I value. Yeah. I think we can probably take one more question. Good. Do you want to? <laughs> oh, we've got two here. Let's do both. <laughs> okay, you first. <laughs> so both you guys are therapists of one ilk or another. I believe Akinjano is a psychotherapist. Mm-hmm. What would the Buddha say about the notion of people lying on couches four or five days a week, and talking ad infinitum. Buddha was not really fond of couches to start with. (laughs) (laughs) They don't really figure big in ancient India, do they? (laughs) Go. Uh, (laughs) My feeling actually is... Um, I don't think he would in many ways see a huge difference between some dimensions of the meditational process and what's going on on the psychotherapist's couch. The difference is that in the meditative um, arena, we're doing it for ourselves. We've got no external adjudicator, nobody there listening in a sense. Because if you think about it, what, what happens on the psychotherapist's couch, or what's supposed to happen? I mean, what's supposed to happen is you get into a state where all of your, you know, kind of motile stuff gets calmed. And so everything gets pushed up into the mind. And then it becomes talk. That's basically the basic theory behind it. What happens when we stop and we adopt this posture, a posture of stillness, openness, dignity, everything else, and stillness, that's the main thing. Stillness there. Everything gets pushed up into the mind. Yeah? But rather than verbalizing it here, um, we take a stance on it 
ourselves, rather than having somebody external taking a stance on it, where we begin to observe what is going on. So in many senses, I don't see huge differences. The big, big difference is you have somebody out externally interpreting this for you, tracing it back to childhood, tracing it in certain terms of origins and causes and things like this. That is not the Buddha's way. But I think in terms of the actual stilling, the um, movement of a lot of processes into the mind and the observation of those processes, I mean, I think one of the big differences, actually, reflecting on it as I'm speaking, is that we still retain awareness of the body within this. And actually, we, we really actually drop down into the body a lot and become connected to this. But there's still this movement up into the mind and the observation of what is actually occurring in terms of the patterns. I mean, that's the main differences I've seen between the two. Um, I don't think the Buddha is terribly interested in tracing things back to their origins. You know, he certainly wouldn't be tracing stuff back into childhood, for example. Um, not because it's uninteresting, I think it's extremely interesting. Uh, the problem is that we can tend to reify and contract around that material from, I think, the Buddhist perspective rather than just seeing whatever is arising in this present moment. Because, in a sense, our past is our present. It's here, right in this moment. Um, This this is the strange sort of temporality we have sitting on a cushion. Past and present and future are all here right now, as we sit, and and if we're sensitive enough to observe it. So I think there are differences and there are similarities. I think perhaps the Buddha, speaking in this way, might see similarities, but I think it'd see big differences as well. Yeah, I'm very much in agreement. I, I think much of, one of my first teachers used to call meditation a, a nervous breakdown in slow motion. <laughs> um, there's a kind of unraveling and of allowing things to become conscious, which I think the Buddha is very much in favor of. Um, the particular model you seem to refer to, which sounds somewhat analytical and also somewhat antiquated, it seems an immense luxury to spend five days a week talking on your therapist's couch, which the latitudes I cruise in generally do not do that. You know, We would have to ask the Buddha what he thinks of cognitive behavioral models, probably more realistically mm-hmm. than of old-fashioned talking cure on the couch. Um, again, as John... I think the Buddha is interested in release around contractions of notions of a self and mm. the suffering such contraction around such a notion inevitably incurs. That's what his main interest is. He would probably not defend the particular paradigms of uh, such and such an analytical school against you know, the competitor school next door. He, he was not interested in that. He was, by his own account, interested in helping people to release, find release from suffering. In fact, just what he said, he, he does. Teaches only two things, namely the arising of suffering and the cessation of suffering. Um, if such a, a liberating aspect is, is the, the general vision, then I have a feeling he was a very good therapist. If I look at his life or if I look at his practical uh, demeanor in how he dealt, and some of the people he dealt with were quite obstreperous. You know, they weren't all easy uh, candidates. Uh, was quite skilled. I think he has this, he had the skill of a good therapist, not just of a charismatic teacher or of a, you know, uh, 
a mystic a great he was he was quite capable of guiding people in their specific hang-ups or taking them with their specific hang-ups and helping them grow outgrow them he's done that in many different ways so he is i believe as good therapy is concerned with the um, uh, alleviating alleviation of suffering alleviation of suffering i think he's completely in agreement with that Oh yeah, and there's the kind of proviso about couches, isn't it? <laughs> Certainly some of the people he had to deal with were incredibly difficult, and their names say it all. I mean, there's one character who comes up in the suttas called Dandapani, which means stick in hand. <laughs> yeah, there's one man who uh, felt that he had no understanding of impermanence, and the Buddha... Uh, so a simple monk, his name was Chulapantaka, and his, his, um, the teaching was he should take, wash his hands and uh, take a completely freshly washed white piece of linen and then just kind of rub the, the white piece of linen in his washed hands. And basically the stuff went brown after a while. And this is one of the practical skill in means by which the Buddha taught him um, Impermanence, you know, you could see a lot in there. Entropy, uh, how with perfect conditions you still end up with an imperfect result. How you can't keep things can't keep things clean. Uh, you know, with the best of intention and the best of starting points, you you get into a kind of greasy situation after a while. <laughs> <laughs> I think we have one more question, and then we must finish. Yeah. There. Um, so. Before you were talking about these uh, techniques you can use to open yourself up when, when you're going through something difficult or ruminating. Um, and uh, there's always this uh, advice that you, to remember to do this, to remember to do that. Um, and for me, it seems like I, I'm having an earlier problem, which is detection. Mm. Um, so for me, it, it's, you know, 20 minutes later, wait, I was ruminating for 20 minutes. So, uh, is there any way to train the detection part of it? Yes, I mean, 20 minutes in, rumination is already, actually, it's not bad for a start, you know. <laughs> you, could, you could ruminate a lot longer. I mean, there's therapeutic branches who specialize in getting people out of autobiographical rumination uh, because they generally incur depression, you know. My teacher said, if I want to be depressed, all I do is just think about myself for long enough. Just, you, know, <laughs> you use personal pronouns, then usually a temporal adverbial is very good, always, never. You know? <laughs> and then you can fill in almost anything. You know, and you do that for a couple of minutes and you start having this sinking, gloomy feeling. Yeah? And, and then if you really want to make yourself depressed, compare yourself with somebody else. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So actually de having detected after 20 minutes rumination, then you notice the result. You know, the most motivating thing is to see that something doesn't work, or the amount, being very sober about the amount of unpleasantness, the amount of frustration, or the amount of unhappiness you generate by a particular course of action. And if you have that soberly on the table, you know, you're generally motivated to not do that. You will catch it earlier. You will begin to feel what is the body sense of rumination. What does my body feel when I go into this mode? Shoulders go up, head goes forward, 
I lose some sense, sense in my toes. Yeah. If you're not sure, ask somebody whom you know how you look when you're kind of lost in thought. They will help you. They generally have a clear idea how your face looks or what your body posture does when you're that way. See whether you can recognize the body state because the body is more honest than the mind. The mind may be angry, but it will not say I'm angry. It will say I am right. Yeah. At least my mind does that. Yeah. <laughs> but your body, when you're angry, will do very specific things. Your breath will shorten and harden. Your chest will constrict. You may have white knuckles. You, know, you may have a particular specific sensation uh, you can recognize easily. If you know the vocabulary of your body for particular states, being lost in thought, being angry, being happy, being frightened, being depressed, this is very useful stuff to know. And then you just kind of Track it back. 15 minutes, as much as one. You will be able to go back to when it starts. You will beginning to see, now this train of thought offers itself. I could, I could join, I could jump on board, uh, uh, and it, you know, I'll be in three minutes, having taken that train, I'll be there and there. You know that after a while. And if you go back, you will, may be possible to not go onto that train. Be, hum be humble. It's not a bad thing to notice that it hasn't worked. You know, the thing is, if, you ha if it has blown its cover and it sounds like it has already blown its cover, then it's only a matter of gradual ap approximation of the point when it starts. Yeah. Good. Well, I think we need to end. Thank you for your curiosity and yes. your willingness to go into this. I just want to say one concluding remark, really, just to kind of draw things to a conclusion, which is to enter into this path of meditation requires you to ask a question, really, which is a big question for all of us, and I really do mean it as a genuine question. How do we want to live? That's the question really at the back of it. How do we want to live? I mean, the Buddhist, <clears throat> the Buddhist path has very specific um, rationales behind this in the sense of if we begin to observe in our lives that our lives actually end up with a degree of circularity in them. I end up doing the same sort of things, getting angry at the same sort of things, being irritated by the same sort of things. Then perhaps we recognize that starting point that the Buddha talked about, or I talked about on the first night that the Buddha really also described, which is we have a problem. You know? And the problem is we end up in places of distress, dissatisfaction, again and again and again and again. And if we actually begin to look at these, we really begin to observe that they're founded in states of mind which are very, very deeply embedded in us. <clears throat> One is confusion, which we talked about a little bit. And the other really is the outcome of those confusions, which is aversion and greed or desire there. Now, from this perspective, all of our unwholesome behavior is rooted in those things. Yeah. And so when we begin to ask ourselves that question, how do we want to live, the question really comes down to, do I want to live rooted in greed, aversion, and delusion? Greed, aversion, and confusion. And this path offers a way, in a sense, of loosening our attachment to these, because these are known, they're familiar, and beginning to open up into vistas that we never knew. You know, open up into ways of behavior which are actually 
responsive as opposed to reactive. This path of meditation begins to do that by helping us to have a window into these processes, into the processes of we see the greed, aversion, and delusion arising again and again and again in the situations. But we begin also to discern other ways of being in this world. Yeah. That is the benefit of this path, um, but it does come down to how do you want to live? If you sit in the morning, your choices will be informed by the stillness and clarity that comes of your sitting. If you sit in the evening, then you will have a clearer understanding of the fallout of your actions during the day. Both are useful, both are helpful. Just consider. If you want to sit at home, be realistic. Don't suggest to yourself you do one and a half hours in the morning and one and a half hours in the evening. Start with something that you can keep up. While it is heroic to come out from far here for a weekend, what actually counts at the end of the day is how much you get of this into your daily life. If it's important, it has to be somewhere in your 24 hours. Yeah. So it's better to be able to hold 15 minutes and do that daily and actually make a wholesome habit of this rather than have you know a few inspired days where you get up at five and put in two hours before you go to work this kind of thing and then you know you drop off and from then on meditation written on your yellow sheets tacked at your computer is yet another thing you don't do enough of and you feel bad about yourself so don't make meditation one of these Good luck. We wish you well. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your attention and thank you for all your hard work. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.